0: Someone once said that the words of 1 Samuel 26:21 should have been the words carved into King Saul's tombstone. 1 Samuel 26:21 says, "Behold, I have played the fool and have made a great mistake." And those words really do sum up King Saul's life because those very words proved once again to be empty and insincere. After Saul spoke those words, he went right back to living in his old ways, and he did this repeatedly throughout his life. And I wonder, as you think about your life and the legacy that you'll leave behind, how do you want to be remembered? I know part of that is wondering what people will say about you when you're gone, but that's not the point of our lives at all. What should concern us most about the legacy we'll leave behind is, will God be glorified by my life? Well, we've seen so far in our studies through 1 Samuel that Saul was made king at the demand of the people, but his pride and his hard heart became his downfall. So God said that he was going to take Saul's kingdom away from him and he was going to give it to a man who had a heart after his own heart. And in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we saw David being anointed as the next king. But as I said last week, the timing of 1 Samuel is, is very tricky to follow. And what we must remember is that even though David was anointed king in 1 Samuel chapter 16, he actually didn't become king for many years. And God used those years of waiting to prepare David for leadership in ways that David never could have imagined. And last week, we were in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and the rest of this book, chapters 18 to 31, cover that period in David's life, when David had been anointed king but had not yet been placed on the throne. That in-between time in his life was one of the most difficult periods uh, that anyone could ever face in life. He never planned on this. He never thought it would turn out this way. You know the kind of in-between times that I'm talking about, I think. We all have them. Times when we wonder, God, are you still moving? Are you active? Do you know where I am? David didn't go through one or two years of this. He went through many many years. And it started, God had to get David into the palace somehow, and it started by God opening a door for David to become kind of an assistant to King Saul. And by this point, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, Saul had become extremely unstable and unpredictable, and he had violent mood swings. And the one thing that would calm Saul down was soothing music. And so Saul said, find me someone who can play the harp uh, with skill. And one of his servants said, I know a young man named David who's very skillful at the harp. And Saul called him in. And that's how this relationship began between David and King Saul. And David would come in and he would play the harp for Saul every time Saul was in one one of these moods or that spirit came upon him. And David proved himself, and soon Saul uh, invited David to officially become part of the king's service. And as time went by, David continued to serve faithfully, and his leadership ability was obvious to everyone. So Saul continued to entrust David with greater and greater responsibilities. 1 Samuel 18.5 says, so David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul set him over the men of war. Now remember, years have gone by, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And so we begin to see God moving through David's life in ways that are visible to those around him. David stands out from the people around him, and it's obvious to everyone. His, his military prowess becomes very evident And so much so that the women of the city wrote a song for David. And we read one of those lines of that song in 1 Samuel 18, 7. And it says, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And they were singing that in the streets. It was number one on the billboard charts for a while. And this infuriated Saul. He was so insecure that he couldn't handle anybody else being honored above himself. 1 Samuel eighteen eight says, Then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David tens of thousands, but to me they have only ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Verse 9 says, And Saul kept an eye on David from that day forward. And that verse is really a turning point in this narrative. Things change from that point on and they never go back to being the same between David and Saul. That phrase, kept an eye on David in the Hebrew, literally means to watch someone with punishment in mind, with vengeance and intention to bring vengeance on this person. So Saul's jealousy of David continued to grow and one day I'm sure you remember the moment one day when David was playing the harp for Saul Saul threw a spear at David and said I'll pin him to the wall. And David dove out of the way and escaped. In fact, that happened twice. And verse 12 says Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. Now, that's a that's a gut-wrenching statement. It's wonderful in the first part, but horrifying in the second. That when God is with us, uh, even kings will be afraid of us. Not us, but God in us. But when God has departed from us, what a terrifying place to be. And the rest of the book of 1 Samuel describes Saul's growing hatred for David and how he actually began hunting him down like an animal. David had to stay on the run for years to keep from being killed by Saul. And as you read these chapters through, you find that Saul's jealousy was so intense that he was willing to sacrifice anyone and anything in order to destroy David. He used his own daughters, two of his own daughters, as uh, pawns to try to entrap David so that he would be killed and his plan failed twice. And then he used one of his sons, Jonathan, who had become very good friends with David. He used Jonathan to try to get David killed, but Jonathan warned David, and he escaped. And so Saul's anger and madness just continued to grow, because every time he reached out and tried to grab David and do him harm, David slipped through his grasp, and Saul was on the rampage, determined to track David down and kill him. And so David literally had to become a fugitive. He fled from place to place through these chapters, the remaining part of 1 Samuel. We see him fleeing from one city to another, even out into the wilderness, and at times having to hide in caves. One day Saul got news that Ahimelech the priest had helped David by giving him some food and this outraged Saul. And so he ordered all the priests to be killed. And on that day, Saul had 85 priests of the Lord put to death, all because of his jealousy of David. And, you know, after seeing Saul pursue David like this for so many years, surely we would say, you know, David would be excused for killing Saul if he had an opportunity to do so, but again, we see David's character. David did, in fact, have two perfect opportunities to kill Saul, but he chose not to, and instead of killing Saul, David said, I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed, even though he is hunting me down to take my life. I mean, think about that. David had two perfect opportunities to end this and to make himself king. And yet he said, you know what? This is the worst time in my life. I can't imagine things getting any worse than this. I would love for this to be over, but Saul is still the Lord's anointed and I am not gonna lay a hand on him. And I'm gonna wait for God's timing to unfold. It's remarkable. Saul continued to hunt David down. At one point, he took 3,000 men to search for David and try to kill him. And you get this picture of paranoia and insanity taking over. He's a picture of someone who is literally destroying his own life in the process of trying to take revenge on someone else. He's so consumed with jealousy and anger and revenge that he's willing to destroy his own life and his own family just to get this one person. But during those years when David's life was in danger so often, when he was being falsely accused, when he was being hunted like an animal, when his life was turned upside down, during those dark, painful years, David wrote many of his best Psalms. The Psalms that bring you and I comfort and hope and peace came out of some of David's darkest years. I don't need to go into that, do I? We get the lesson there. When things are at our worst in life, we often assume that nothing good could ever come from this, and we're so wrong. All those trials in David's life produced some of the most comforting words that have ever been written, and they're still comforting millions of people today. Well, while all this is going on, we read these sad words in 1 Samuel 25, verse 1. Then Samuel died and the Israelites gathered together and mourned for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. This man Samuel who we've tracked now through this whole book, we've grown to love him. He grew up as a little boy in the temple learning to be a priest. His mother would make a new robe for him every year and bring the little robe to him and we've watched Samuel grow up and become a mighty voice for God. He served as a a priest, a prophet, and a judge. And this man, Samuel, who has stood for the Lord and obeyed the Lord's command, the one who anointed David as the next king, dies now before he's able to see the fulfillment of David taking the throne. But even Samuel's death doesn't stir Saul enough for his heart to change. We turn to, turn the page to 1 Samuel 26, 21. And we find that Saul is still making his empty promises. We read part of this before. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return my son, David, for I will not harm you anymore. But David knew that was a lie because you get to chapter 27, verse one. And it says, David, however, said to himself, one of these days now, I will perish by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me and to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will stop searching for me all over Israel, and I will escape out of his hand. And once again, David is on the run. after all those years of paranoia and jealousy and hunting down David, trying to kill him, it all culminates in chapters 28 through 30. Just look now at where Saul's stubbornness and rebellion have led him. In chapter 28, the Philistines have once again brought their military to attack Israel. And we read starting in chapter 28, verse 5, when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, find for me a woman who is a medium so that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. Now, they're not talking about dress size here, just so you know. Then Saul disguised himself by putting on different clothes, and he set out with two of his men, and they came to the woman at night. And he said, Please divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me the one whom I shall name for you. Now, at this late point in Saul's life. He's been living in rebellion for years and has had no desire to pursue God. But now that he's in trouble, we see him facing this terrifying enemy. What does he do? He inquires of the Lord. He calls out to the Lord, suddenly looking for God's help. And you know, people still do that today. I I couldn't help but think about the weeks after 9-11 happened. Churches across America were packed to capacity for a while until the fear subsided and so did people's interest in God. There was no real change in Saul's heart. He only wanted God's help because he was in trouble, man. He was facing an enemy who was about to wipe him out and he inquired of the Lord, but it says the Lord did not answer him. And maybe we have to stop and wonder about that. What's going on here? Didn't God say, if you cry out to me, I will answer you? Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2 gives us a little more insight on this. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Now, this is not describing a person who has a truly repentant heart coming to God. This is describing the person who deliberately continues to pursue sin and reject God. Saul wasn't the least bit interested in surrendering his heart or his will to the Lord. Just look at how quickly he turns from God to an alternate source in these verses I just read. One minute, he's inquiring of the Lord for help, and the Lord doesn't answer him. So what does he do next? Does he go and seek out more help from one of the priests or someone? Oh no, that's right, he killed all the priests. Immediately, he turns to a medium, a spiritist, a fortune teller, we might say. Now, this is a person who tries to contact the dead or demons It's ultimately witchcraft. And folks, I'll tell you, it's very real. You know, growing up on the mission field, I think it was more real to us than it is here in the States. But don't ever mess with that stuff. Don't ever ever even dip your toe in that water. You stay away from that. God does not want you meddling with that at all. I think we're in such a dream state here about the whole demonic realm uh, years ago, I once had a guy, this is when our family was getting ready to go back to South Africa. And uh, I was telling him that, yeah, we're going back to Africa. He goes, oh, Africa, that's where they have demons, right? And I went, yeah. <laughs> and here too. It's remarkable. And so Saul knows that what he's about to do is forbidden by God. That's why he disguises himself and he goes under the cover of darkness. And that should always tell us something in our life. Unless you're planning a surprise birthday party for your spouse, you you shouldn't have secrets. You shouldn't have to do underhanded things. Anytime we have to look around or cover up, that should be a sign to us that we're doing something that we wouldn't be proud of going public with Saul disguised himself. I mean, this it's such a disgraceful picture we see here. The king of Israel putting on different clothes, pretending to be someone else, sneaking in at night to see this fortune teller. When God had said all along, I will be your king. I will fight for you. No enemy will overcome you. Look what the king has to resort to now. Now this, again, a uh, shows how erratic Saul's thinking had become because earlier Saul had actually uh, gotten rid of all the mediums in the land. He'd done that in one of his better moments. But now he's actually seeking advice from one of the very people he had earlier forbidden. He's just from one extreme to the other. So he goes in to meet with this spiritus and he asks her to call up Samuel who has just died recently. Now, this is amazing to me as well. It shows the bizarre thinking, the state of mind that this man is in. After all the times that Samuel had rebuked Saul for his sin and rebellion, why would Saul ever think that he would get good news from Samuel now, especially calling him up from the dead? And we just see how sin blinds the mind and dulls the conscience. So this medium makes contact with Samuel, but Saul was not prepared for what he was about to hear. Chapter 28, verse 19. This is Samuel speaking now to Saul. The Lord will deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. What a miserable place Saul's life has come to. And it all concludes in chapter 31, one of the saddest chapters in the Bible. Chapter 31, verse one. Now the Philistines fought against Israel and the men of Israel fled from before them and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Melchishua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, because he was greatly afraid. Then Saul took his sword and fell on it. When his armor bearer Saul saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. And verse six gives this chilling, heartbreaking summary. So Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men together that same day. What a tragic end. What a tragic end. But it actually doesn't end there. Saul and his sons weren't the only ones to suffer the consequences of Saul's unrepentant life. Look at verse 7. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled and the Philistines came and lived in them. All those years in Saul's life leading up to this, all those years, I imagine he might have thought, you know, uh, it's nobody's business how I live. It's not going to hurt anybody. Boy, was he wrong. Saul's rebellion not only brought about his tragic death, it brought about the death of his sons, brought about the death of his army, and it brought suffering to all of Israel, but Tragically, again, it doesn't end there. It wasn't enough for the Philistines just to see Saul dead. They continued to humiliate him after his death. And I apologize for reading these verses in here. They're pretty rough, but we need to see this. We need to see what Satan does when we give him the upper hand. Verse 8, the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons... Fallen on Mount Gilboa, and they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their gods and among the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. And 1 Chronicles fills in some more details of this and said, Not only Saul's body, but his sons as well. They pinned them all up on the wall for everyone to see and to laugh at. The great historian Alfred Edersheim wrote these words, And now it was night, and the headless bodies of Saul and his sons, deserted by all, swung in the wind on the walls of Bethshan amid the hoarse music of vultures and jackals. Saul's legacy of disobedience didn't end on the battlefield. It lived on long after he died. These pagans sent messengers throughout the land to spread the good news of Saul's death and death. And all the pagans rejoiced and celebrated. His armor was placed in the pagan temple and put on display like a trophy. And by doing this, the enemy was saying, our idols have triumphed over the God of Israel. And his body was hung on the wall, which was a way back then to bring the most possible humiliation to a dead person. And as I read all this, I keep thinking to myself, it didn't have to end this way. It didn't have to end this way. Saul could have done so much with what he had been given. God even empowered him with his spirit at the beginning. This man who was taller and more handsome than all the Israelites. This man who once heard the people shouting, Long live the king! This man who built a monument to himself because he wanted so much to be honored. This same man is now hanging on the wall of his enemies in disgrace. Saul spent his life Craving to be honored, craving to look good in the eyes of the people, and he died such an undignified, humiliating death. And the Bible tells us exactly why Saul died. First Chronicles ten thirteen says, so Saul died for his unfaithfulness which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because he consulted a medium for guidance because of the life Saul chose to live, he was dishonored, his sons were dishonored, his nation was dishonored, and his God was dishonored. And that's the real tragedy here. That's the real tragedy, is that God did not receive glory from any of this. God was mocked and dishonored by the pagans. And that's what we talked about last week, that Our lives should be lived, not for ourselves, but for God's glory. And Saul's, as I said a minute ago, his testimony of unfaithfulness lived on long after he died. The city of Beth Shan was excavated in the 1920s by, believe it or not, people from Penn State University. Uh, And they went and dug up this city. You can see amazing pictures of it online. It was built on a a hilltop. It was a huge city, very popular city. They've excavated this place, and they have artifacts from this in the museum uh, at Penn State. And in one of the cases, they have etched on a plaque there that Saul's body was hung on the wall of Beth-shan. You see, even centuries later, people are strolling by in that museum, and they're reading those words, and they're thinking about the story, and Saul's life continues to bring disgrace on the honor of of God. It's a frightening thought. And even right now, as we read about the end of his life, it brings a sense of sadness to our heart, a sense of shame. And I would say that your life and mine is going to live on long after we're dead. And it's going to bring glory to either God or to Satan. And just think about the difference between those two, we've all known people in both categories. What kind of legacy will you leave? Proverbs ten seven says, The memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. And I'll tell you, the, the people I have the, the dearest memories of are the people who, even though it may have cost them a lot, chose to live for God's glory. And that glory is still glowing to this day. I think of Sandy's father, one of the greatest men I've ever known in my life, a humble servant of the Lord, just a remarkable man who lived in literally crippling pain, and yet he was filled with the joy of the Lord. He died, oh, decades ago now, and yet his beautiful memory and testimony for the Lord still live on to this day. Folks, you know what? 10 years, 20 years, 30 years after you're gone, oh, it may, it may fade in frequency, but still your name's gonna come up. Someone's gonna see an old photograph and they're either gonna wince at the legacy you've left or it's gonna bring tears to their eyes and a smile on their face and joy in their heart as they remember how your life brought glory to God. And as we stand now at this tragic scene My mind can't help but go back to chapter 8, when the people demanded to have a king so they could be like all the other nations. And God said to Samuel, who was very upset by their decision, he said, Samuel, it's okay. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting me. God had said that he would be their king, that he would watch over them, that he would provide everything they needed. What the people were actually doing was they were putting their hope in someone other than God. They were saying, yes, God, we, we know that you said that you would be our savior and deliverer, but we want a savior and deliverer of our own choosing. And that's exactly what they got. And it brought them shame and disgrace. And the pattern that should be clear to us by now or at least becoming clear as we're making our way now through the whole Bible and we've come this far, the pattern should be clear that every time God's people turned to someone or something else besides God, they were always left disappointed. Saul turned out to be another leader who was unable to give the people the peace and fulfillment that they were searching for. In fact, every person we've seen so far who was looked to as a great leader and a potential savior, they all have one thing in common. They're all dead. Noah is dead. Abraham is dead. Joseph is dead. Moses is dead. Joshua is dead. And now Samuel is dead. And we know that even David, who was a great leader who's coming up next, he will also die. And he too will fall short of truly delivering his people. And I think what this should do for us is remind us that the entire Old Testament is one long succession of temporary saviors who all ultimately fail to bring true and lasting freedom and deliverance from the one thing that the people most need to be delivered from, their sin. And all those failed attempts, one after another, all point us forward and cry out with with kind of a desperate longing for the one true Savior who would one day come. All the millions of people through the ages who've placed their hope in an earthly Savior, only to watch their hope go unfulfilled yet again, are all knowingly or unknowingly longing for the same thing. They're all, in one way or another, singing the words, Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. You know, with all the chaos raging in the world and perhaps all the chaos raging in your life right now, most people don't even realize it, but what they're really searching for is Jesus. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 tells us that God has put eternity in the hearts of men for every one of us. And I mean every one of us. We may pursue this and pursue that thinking that it's going to fulfill us. But what we're actually looking for, whether we know it or not, is Jesus. He's the only one, the only Savior, who will never fail his people. He's the only one who can bring true, lasting hope and peace and salvation. Is he your hope today? Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from Life Point Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him.